Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. Recently, I was joined by two of my I4CP colleagues, CEO and co-founder Kevin Oakes and senior research analyst Molly Lombardi, who shared key findings from our latest research called The Productivity Predicament. But before we get to that, did you know that in addition to being a human capital research firm, I4CP also has an executive search practice that specializes in recruiting diverse and high-performing human capital leaders. We help our clients, whether I4CP members or not, to successfully build their human capital leadership teams through effective placement of chief people officers, as well as leaders of diversity and inclusion, talent acquisition, learning and development, total rewards, and their people analytics functions. To learn more, just visit i4cp.com forward slash executive search. Okay, now for that discussion with Kevin Oakes and Molly Lombardi on our new research study, The Productivity Predicament. All right. Thank you, Tom. And uh, welcome, Molly. I'm glad you uh, could do this with me. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. This was um, a lot of Molly's hard work and uh, a number of people on the team as well. Uh, But this is a new study that we'll be releasing just in a few days uh, called The Productivity Predicament, as Tom mentioned, kind of a mouthful. Uh, but it's a, a study we're excited about. Uh, the, uh, the pendulum that you see in the background is really symbolic of why we decided to embark on this study. Uh, we heard from a number of our member companies that while they were emphasizing a lot of empathy right after the pandemic and a lot of managers were uh, asked to do that, they were conditioned to do it, many of them were focused on empathy, the focus on productivity uh, may have waned in those companies uh, immediately after the pandemic. And what we've seen uh, since is a, a, a general swing back towards a focus on productivity. Uh, but many of these same organizations are wondering, you know, have we gone too far or have we swung too quickly away from empathy and uh, too, uh, you know, too much focus on productivity? At the same time, there's been a lot of uh, productivity discussion Uh, more broadly, which I'll get to in a second. But you can see some of the survey demographics. We had some great responses. Um, A lot of different um, geographies were involved in this study. Uh, We got a great response too from senior executives, you know, C-level, board member, et cetera, uh, to to respond to this particular study itself. Molly, any other background that you want to give? No, just that in addition to the general findings today and the coming weeks, we're going to have a specialized report on uh, productivity in EMEA and the findings from EMEA and then also Asia-PAC in, in August. So keep, in, keep those in mind for your colleagues in those areas or yourself if you're in those areas as well. Excellent. Well, a lot of you have probably read um, some of the productivity woes that uh, we've seen, certainly in the U.S., but it's, it's really been worldwide. Um, one of the headlines that really got our attention a few months ago was the Washington Post headline that uh, productivity has declined in the U.S. and no one's really sure why. Uh, but the same phenomenon has happened in other countries around the globe. We're just showing a couple different headlines here. And let me just give you a little, you know, some statistics around this. So the recent productivity news really has not been great. Uh, The output per hour worked at U.S. non-farm businesses, which is also known as labor productivity, uh, was 0.8% lower in the first quarter than it was a year earlier. And that was the fifth consecutive uh, quarterly drop, the first time that's happened since 1947, which is why this is making headlines. Um, The annual statistics for 2022 showed that labor productivity declined in 37 states in the U.S., uh, and it was overall a a 1.2% total drop uh, overall. Now, when we talk about these statistics, it's all coming um, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they're calculating this 
um, by dividing an index of real output by an index of hours worked by all workers. Uh, but the, the U.S. productivity in particular has, uh, has plunged, um, and in the first quarter it was down 2.7% versus the same quarter last year. Um, and that's a uh, that's a that's a almost a one percent year over year drop. Concurrently, quarter over quarter output grew slightly, and hours worked also grew um, by three percent. So that what that really means is that people are working longer hours, um, but not putting out more products and more services, uh, and just not being as productive as they're used to. And so that's what the broad statistics are saying, but we're hearing the uh, similar things from organizations. There's been concern around, are we being as productive as uh, we could be? And there's a lot of reasons people have put out there for why, you know, this might be occurring. Uh, you know, flexible work, uh, people working remotely, being, being forced back to the office uh, have all been tossed out there as reasons why productivity might be declining. Um, we've heard uh, lower immigration as a reason. We've heard uh, inflation as a reason. Employees are burned out. I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of theories on why this has occurred. And so that's why this topic was pretty inter interesting to us. Um, Molly, I'll let you uh, uh, talk to this slide just as, as we looked at you know, high and low performers overall. Yeah, I mean, it probably isn't surprising to anyone that high performer performance was correlated with productivity. But I think given all the stats that Kevin just shared as well, it, it isn't just even high performance organizations that are feeling productive, they may not be as productive as they had once been because we look at this overall statistics of all companies, productivity is down. And again, I think also the bit of it is perception, right? If you're doing well, you're less likely to ask a lot of questions about productivity because you assume it's there. Whereas if you're struggling when, in terms of performance, you're definitely going to put a lot of laser focus on what's happening productivity. So this is just sort of showing that we still, we're seeing a strong correlation between top performance and productivity, but we really wanted to dig in and understand among those high performance organizations, what are they doing differently to achieve that environment of productivity and, um, and performance? And keep in mind, as Tom uh, uh, outlined at the beginning, when we talk about high performance organizations, we're talking about companies that have better revenue growth, profitability, market share, and customer satisfaction over the last five years. And that's the way we bifurcate all of our research. Now, it's interesting when you talk about this, this uh, subject of productivity because there is some subjectivity in, in it if you don't have really hard measures. And I love this statistic that Microsoft came up with uh, again a few months ago, uh, where they asked employees, are you productive at work? <clears throat> and 87% of employees said, hell yeah, I'm productive at work. Um, when they asked leaders, do you have full confidence that your team is productive? Only 12% of leaders <laughs> said that they have that full confidence. And it's almost an equal percentage here uh, that adds up to 100%. So, you know, I think we see this play out in a lot of organizations where employees feel like they're working as hard as ever. Um, but the organization itself is wondering, are we getting full productivity uh, out of the out of employees, and you know, do they trust that they are getting that full productivity out out of the employee base? Um, <clears throat> so, Molly, this is really the the genesis of the uh, of the report. But I'll let you uh, describe what we found here when we looked at empathy and productivity. Yeah, and the disconnect in the last slide was really. I mean, of course, you're going to have issues with empathy and trust and things like that when you think about that disconnect, right? The employees feel that they're working really hard and managers don't. But we found that organizations that list both productivity and empathy among their top three priorities post-pandemic, that had a hugely strong correlation to trust, goal achievement, and culture health. So it wasn't the one or the other. It's actually organizations that found a way to balance that pendulum and, and swinging back, instead of swinging back and forth, really trying to balance that empathy and productivity are, was actually what was driving uh, trust, goal achievement, and culture health. So it's not one or the other. It really is that combination of both. Yeah, we talk about some strategies to achieve that. Yeah, not a huge shock that uh, the best managers out there and the best organizations um, are able to uh, emphasize both for sure. Now, when we um, ask organizations, what is your current work model policy? And this is something that has changed rapidly over the last several months. Uh, you can see that a number of organizations have gone to a hybrid model, 
um, where employees are required to be in, in the office or on site certain days of the week or a certain amount of time per week. And that is really the way most of um, the workforce is operating these days, uh, where companies don't really like using the word forced. So we you know, use different terms like agile and um, flexible and other things, but it really is a requirement to be on site. There are other organizations that have, <clears throat> have required uh, companies to be on site full time and uh, you know, those have been well documented. And then there's a relatively small percentage of companies that are either fully remote or are allowing full flexibility uh, where employees decide where they work. And we, um, we we're showing this because a lot of the work model decisions are affecting uh, what's happening, I think, with productivity for sure. And that's what the research is backing up, as well as just what's happening with the culture overall inside the organization. Now, when we ask companies, um, what were the reasons given for your current work model? There were three answers that really bubbled to the top. Collaboration, culture, and productivity. And I see this in uh, news articles all the time when uh, CEOs or, or corporate spokespeople are talking about why they've asked employees to come back to the work site. Uh, they will often use one of these three terms. And selection of this um, of these three terms we found from a research perspective was either very weakly or negatively correlated with overall performance and achievement of goals and in particular that that productivity reason um, is not a valid reason from the research perspective um, quietly we've heard from a lot of organizations who are concerned that their return to office their hybrid um, policies are actually, limiting productivity inside their organization. Um, it gets very emotional in many organizations, and I'm sure many of you on the line feel that way. Uh, this discussion is one that is ongoing for sure, uh, but the research really doesn't back up uh, any of these reasons for why we want somebody on premise or, or on site overall. So we give you that as a backdrop before we go into our four key findings. And Molly, do you want to review these? Sure. So what we found is, you know, it wasn't that being on site's bad or being remote is bad. It really is no matter where people sit. Often HR and the rest of the business from um, doesn't get to make those decisions. They are sort of thrust upon you. But no matter where your team sits, these are things that are going to help you drive that productivity and performance that you're looking for. So we found that productivity flourishes in environments of trust. Um, high performance organizations prioritize both the what and the how of goal achievement. So it's not just what you achieve, but do you do it in a way that makes you a good colleague and that helps you contribute to the organization's overall values. Um, again, empathy and productivity are not mutually exclusive. It's about finding a balance and training your managers to find a balance between those two. And the last one is generative AI. Um, we've been talking about it a lot. You've probably been hearing about it a lot, whether you are experimenting with it or not. I'm sure it's something you hear about every day. Um, but generative AI will significantly impact productivity. So let's go into those uh, key findings. Uh, we'll, we'll start with the first one here. Uh, just taking a look at how productivity is flourishing in an environment of trust. Um, trust is uh, something that as we began exploring this whole subject, um, just kept coming up over and over again as a, a real core thing that defined whether a company was productive or not. Um, we, um, we actually found it explained 18% of increased productivity since the start of the pandemic in organizations. And we created this trust index. Molly and her team uh, came up with these five variables that we mapped to uh, around the senior leadership trusting uh, is trusted by employees, that managers are trusted by their direct reports, that employees trust their team members, that senior leaders trust their employees, and that managers trust their team members. And it's interesting to map those, um, this index and how companies responded to these questions and correlate it back to performance. You know, how did they do overall as an organization? And the results were rather startling. And, and uh, Molly, I'll let you walk through yeah. this particular graph. 
Yeah, and someone in the chat just asked how trust was measured, and this is really sort of the index of things we put together to measure trust and really talk about, um, you know, it's a bi-directional, omnidirectional trust. It's not just senior leadership trusting employees and vice versa. It really is among colleagues and managers as well. What we found is, again, those high-performing organizations were significantly different in their, um, in their agreement with the fact that they have that kind of trust throughout their organization. So anywhere between, you can see three and a half and 11% more likely to have these different levels of trust. And I, whenever I look at the slide, I was a little bit sad thinking about the companies where only 3% of the organizations feel that their senior leadership team is trusted by employees and senior leaders trust their employees. That's got to feel pretty awful, right? To work in an environment where that's yeah, true. Let's uh, put a little bit of a caveat on that. This was uh, respondents who said they strongly agreed yes. uh, with these statements. So we had a five-point Likert scale and we're taking the you know the top end of that scale and by comparison, but it's pretty telling when you do take that top end of the scale. Yeah, especially when you think about that senior leadership trust, and even among direct reports and colleagues, um, really sort of a sad state of affairs in low performance companies. I think any of us who've been in organizations where that's true um, have felt both in low productivity, trust erodes and trust erodes eroding causes low productivity. Yeah. We, um, we found this same kind of disparity um, in a previous study that we did on culture fitness, where we found when you looked at the impact on organizational health, those companies that said that they had a toxic culture were 16 times more likely to say they had a lack of trust in senior leaders, and that was an issue they needed to be addressed. They also were 10 times more likely to say they didn't have psychological safety in their environment, so it was unsafe for them to express opinions or concerns. And conversely, companies with healthy cultures, uh, they consistently told us they have leaders who lead by example, they're held accountable for the employee experience or employee outcomes, uh, such as career mobility and uh, uh, career development, et cetera. They regularly communicate values and in their organization, they're addressing poor behavior right away. They're not letting uh, brilliant jerks uh, exist inside the organization. Uh, whether somebody's uh, successful or not in, from a business perspective, it's how they got there that's uh, something that they're they're concerned about. And if there's poor behavior, they're addressing it right away. Now, Molly, we found an interesting stat around how you can create trust inside the organization. Yeah, and one of the questions actually showing up in the chat was how do you build trust, right, in, in an environment where it's been eroded. And we found that high-performance organizations actually train for trust. They actually train managers and leaders in how to set goals with their uh, team members. They train them in providing developmental feedback, which is different than just general feedback. Developmental feedback is very much focused on what can we do next, how can we learn from this, give feedback to help people grow, and performance coaching. So one of the things is providing opportunities to um, to learn these key coaching skills and train for them. It's not just something that we hope managers um, develop as they get promoted, right? It's not inherent. With, it doesn't come with the business card with the, the managerial title. It really is something you have to train for. So that's one of the things we found uh, was helping organizations build trust. And the other one is building trust through autonomy, which is on the next slide, because it's a way to sort of start to experiment with trust. You can set people with a goal and give them autonomy in, as individuals and as teams to go about achieving them. And one of the really the best ways to build trust both directions is to set goals together, achieve them, and do it again and again and again and again and again. And we'll talk about that with how you do that that with some of the goal setting processes. When you're building that trust, it's little steps if it's if it's been broken, but it can take like like employee engagement, when we were talking about that, it can take a thousand acts to build it and one to destroy it. So be cautious as you're thinking about setting goals and as you're thinking about setting uh, levels of autonomy, but also train your managers, give them skills to help them build that trust as well. I think um, as we talk about return to office um, or, you know, versus flexibility, this autonomy equation is a big one. I think a lot of uh, individuals are feeling like they have less autonomy when there is a peanut butter spread uh, edict across the organization, not really accounting for different styles of work, um, different situations of employees might find themselves in. I've often told senior executives, anytime you're putting out a blanket policy like that across the organization, you're immediately creating exceptions, you know, and there are people who have, uh, you know, different situations that they're, you know, are, are, are concerned about talking to their managers about. And that's why you've seen some of the petitions or the walkouts by employees 
who have rebelled against you know some of these uh, some of these policies. Uh, a big part of it is just feeling like we're not trusted and we don't have that autonomy. Uh, so I think that's big. That's playing a big part in how people are feeling about trust these days. All right, let's move on to our uh, key finding number two, and I'll let you uh, talk to this, Molly. Yeah. So again, it's about the what and the how. It's not just what you do, but again, that no brilliant jerks policy, right? You can't you can't do well at our company without doing good as well. Is kind of what we're saying. And what we found actually is that high performance organizations are more than four times more likely to agree that culture values how goals are achieved and not just achievements of themselves. So it's not enough in high performing companies. They realize it's not enough just to hit the goals. You have to do it in the way that makes you a good corporate citizen. And actually, you'll see in one of the case studies if you remember and download the report that one of our case studies, they featured um, the, this, they revamped their performance scorecard to indicate how how good people were to each other, you know, and that made it, so even though productivity can be defined lots of different ways, the way they defined their productivity levels as people who are getting things done and getting them done in the right way. So it wasn't a productivity scale that was like, are they producing X widgets? It was really, are they achieving what they said they would do and are they doing it in the right way? So it's really about how you balance those two when you set goals and when you give feedback on goals as well. We um, we created another index um, as part of this uh, study that was a manager effective index. And this one had four different variables that explained a 19% uh, increased productivity since the start of the pandemic. And Molly, I'd love it if you could walk us through uh, these four uh, uh, variables. Yeah, I mean, I always talk about managers as the translation point, right? They're that translation point between the organization's goals and priorities and what individuals do every day. So we found that these four variables, the more likely people were to agree with them, also had a huge correlation to overall productivity. So managers having an understanding of organizational goals, managers are effective at helping individuals set goals. So they are understanding where our organization is going and they're helping individuals set goals that are going to help them work towards that and drawing that line of connection between what you're doing every day and organizational goals. Uh, they're effective at coaching. And again, we talked about training for that. Um, and then providing frequent feedback to employees. So not only developmental feedback, but frequency of feedback is really important. And what we saw when we looked at high performers and low performers is, again, this big gap between um, how often these things were true among high-performance organizations versus low-performance organizations. And really, it's critical to think about how they act as that translation point. I mean, I think it's so important to help managers. Again, if managers weren't good at this, it doesn't matter where their team sit right? They could have been remote. They could be right in front of them. These are things that you have to do, have in place as good managers, no matter where you are. If you're a bad manager during the pandemic, you're going to still a bad manager, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so how do you make sure that these are things, no matter where someone sits, no matter what their role is, have, having their manager there to translate those goals is really essential to high performance. And again, just for clarity, this is uh, people responding uh, to a five-point Likert scale and strongly agreeing or agreeing uh, to these uh, these different variables, but the disparity is pretty is pretty uh, evident between high and low performing organizations. It's interesting this whole conversation around goals, though. It's this is a conversation that's as old as the hills. Um, we uh, our our organization I4CP. We used to be called the Human Resource Institute, and we were founded decades ago by Rentis Lickert, who invented the Lickert scale. Uh, but also by George Ordiorn. And George uh, was one of the fathers of uh, management by objective and wrote several books. Um, he, he was a protege of Peter Drucker. And the two of them talked about the importance of MBO, again, decades and decades ago. So, that, you know, this, this concept of goals is not new at all. But a lot of organizations feel like they've kind of gotten away from it. And managers haven't uh, done necessarily as, as great a job as they can of holding people accountable to goals and organizations haven't been cascading goals as clearly or as directly. And we're, and we're kind of moving back to that now. I think the pandemic put a little bit of a, a wrench into that. But one of the things that we found uh, as part of the study was that uh, you, you really should have a goal process. Um, and that is some kind of organizational wide goal setting uh, measurement process that you've put into place. Um, a lot of organizations are using OKRs um, to do that. Uh, many use KPIs to do that. I, I just mentioned MBO. 
there's other methods that organizations use to measure uh, the goal process overall. But not having a process was twice as likely in a low performing organization. And it also had a negative correlation to, uh, to trust and goal achievement overall. Anything else you want to add to that one, Molly? Just again, to, to echo what we were saying before, it gives us transparency between not only what the goal is, but how you're expected to achieve it. And that's really one of the ways you build trust. Again, sort of in drips and in little uh, bit, bits, as people are saying in the chat, you have to build it piece by piece. It can be destroyed easily, but it's really important to make sure that you have a process to not only make sure everyone's clear, but to make sure you have that transparency that begins to build that trust while achieving goals at the same time. And, you know, certainly a lot of this um, comes about in, in the performance management process, something that we have written a lot about um, and have put out a, a number of different studies on. But as part of this study, we looked at the frequency of developmental feedback um, by managers. And Molly, I'd love, again, if you could walk us through these. Yeah. Yeah, what I think is interesting here is if you look at the left two bars on the uh, high-performance organization, almost 80%, you know, four out of five high-performance organizations request that managers meet with their employees at least quarterly. So that's you know four out of five are suggesting that. But on the low-performance organizations, over a quarter, 27% there in the purple say they have no set expectations for when feedback should happen. So again, it's not just the frequency, but the fact that low-performing organizations don't even sort of concern themselves with suggesting frequency of feedback. So again, when you think about trust, when you think about performance without that kind of feedback on a regular basis, it can be really difficult to balance not only achieving your goals, but also understanding what the person is going through. If you're only checking in with me once a year or ad hoc, how are you going to know what things are impacting uh, my ability to achieve my goals? And so if you're trying to balance empathy and goal achievement, you really can't do it without having that kind of frequency of feedback as well. I think a lot of managers too are going through a time period here of adjustment. We um, mm -hmm. we've had to uh, work in a you know a fully remote environment you know, immediately following the pandemic, where sometimes it was difficult for those managers to uh, provide this timely feedback um, to to individuals and you know work more on a schedule of, of scheduling that feedback versus just doing it serendipitously. Uh, today, a, a number of those managers have. Uh, have hybrid teams, right? You've got uh, people that you're seeing on an everyday basis, and then you've got people that you're not seeing uh, on a regular basis. And so certainly you've got to uh, be cognizant of proximity bias, but I, you know, just the ability to provide equal feedback um, on a frequent basis to those two types of audiences, I think is a period of adjustment for a lot of organizations and a lot of managers. Yeah, and really putting some intentionality behind it, setting these goals of having frequent feedback is important from leaders to make sure managers understand that. And really, you know, making it make it an intentional part of your day. This doesn't just happen. You know, you don't build trust and set goals and achieve them by happenstance. It really is something that needs to be part of the everyday activity for leaders and managers. And as we as we typically find, Molly, um, the companies that are training managers how to do this generally are higher performing organizations and doing better at it versus just letting managers figure it out themselves. So, uh, this, yeah. is, uh, this is a plea to our training uh, counterparts <laughs> might be on, the, on the line today uh, to certainly um, try to focus on this area for manager development. Well, I call it the code of silence, right? You get promoted to a managerial role. You don't want to say, hey, I don't know how to do this because you figured they promoted me. I must, they must think I know. And senior leaders are saying things like, well, we hope they figure it out because I had to figure it out. You know, like there's a better way you can actually train for this. Yeah. And, for sure. Um, well, let's go to our, our key finding number three, which is something we uh, we highlighted at the beginning of this, and that was that empathy and productivity, while we've seen a pendulum swing, uh, in the best companies, they are not mutually exclusive, and that shouldn't come as a, as a big shock. But the reason why we're making a big deal out of this is because it was a pretty precipitous drop in what uh, organizations were telling us were priorities for leadership during the pandemic versus today, you know, what are the, those priorities? 
And Molly, I know you were you were uh, surprised yeah. to see this when we got the results back. Well, sort of uh, unsurprisingly, dismayed maybe might be a better way. So we kind of felt like it was bad, but boy, was it really bad. And I kind of love this slide because it shows that drop. Number one during the pandemic period was all about demonstrating empathy for individual situations, and it just dropped like a rock to the bottom. Number two and number three during the pandemic around being in tune to well-being and organizational goal achievement, those kind of stayed in the top half. But really, you know, you talk about this whiplash, your leaders were so focused on one type of relationship with you and suddenly they're being taught that's gone to the bottom of the list. I think this was sort of shocking, but in some ways unsurprising to see how how much it really dropped that remembering that you're people have gone through this whiplash that you're going through as well. They've suddenly had one type of relationship with work and now it's, it's trying to change and that can really destroy trust as well. But I think, you know, it was really interesting to see this precipitous drop off. Goal achievement was kind of there at the, in the, during the pandemic, but just the fact that that of all the different um, focuses we asked about, it just really dropped like a rock. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, certainly the, um, uh, the, the, the return to worksite policies, I think have had a big, uh, you know, uh, that, that was a big reason why this has happened. I think a number of uh, individuals felt that empathy uh, from the start, but they felt like it just went away when you're being forced to return to the office for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Uh, and people are really upset about it. I mean, people feel like they're being, their trust has been broken because their employer is going back on a situation that was working for them. Now that may or may not be true. And it may be actually that they should be back at work, but it's gonna, there's a lot of emotion behind it right now. Yeah, yeah, particularly when there were big broad statements made right after the pandemic about we didn't care where we don't care where you work to uh, today where, you know, in some cases, it's been an about face. Yeah. Now, some of that has probably led to employee burnout. And Molly, I know this is a subject that you've um, looked at pretty extensively. Yeah, again, that whiplash is exhausting. You know, it's sort of exhausting to be hearing one thing from one side, one thing from the other, to have to be thinking about, gee, am I going to have to go back to work and find childcare or find, you know, readjust how my family operates because of, you know, now I have a commute again. And so burnout is pervasive. We can see the global average. This is just a sampling of our global data, but the global average was 25% of organizations that responded indicated that the burnout is a pervasive problem for their organizations. A little bit unsurprising because we're such overachievers in the U.S. sometimes. We are leading the pack when it comes to burnout. But even among other all the other regions that we kind of looked at, um, it's a significant problem for a lot, of, uh, a lot of organizations. And it's one of those things that when people are exhausted and feeling burnt out, it's really hard to regain trust. It's really hard to focus on goals. So being able to kind of build those relationships back bit by bit and sort of deal with some of this burnout is also really critical to keep your, your troops engaged, so to speak, and wanting to help you achieve your goals. Yeah. And obviously, we're not on this slide breaking down every region of the globe, um, but we just broke down regions where we had quite a bit of data and where we thought there was some interesting uh, data to, to showcase. Um, but I think a lot of this burnout, too, goes back to what we said earlier, Molly. It's our managers focused on the employee outcomes. You know, are they right. thinking about the employee experience overall? And that certainly was um, you know, something that popped up to us in, in the study itself. Yeah, we saw that uh, 63%, almost two-thirds, say that organizations place a high level of importance on achievement of business outcomes when evaluating leader performance. So this is, again, people who strongly agreed with that statement. They said, you know, two, about two-thirds of organizations are saying, yes, you, to be a good leader and to evaluate, be, when we evaluate our leaders, we want to know that they achieve business outcomes. But only 21%, one in five, said the organizations place that same kind of importance on achieving those employee outcomes or those employee experience outcomes. So the majority of organizations, we're still, we may be saying, hey, you've got to focus on employees and be empathetic and develop people. We're not actually evaluating leaders by that. Uh, so we're asking them for one thing and evaluating them, their performance based on something else. So again, really uh, one of those times to really consider, are we rewarding for the right things? You know, Can you be a good leader in our organization if you're not looking at employee outcomes? Just we're talking about no brilliant jerks in other roles, even managers as well. Managers who achieve great results in their team, but do it in a way that causes a lot of turnover or churn or people aren't developing or they're hoarding talent. Is that going to be acceptable in our organization? Are we going to not evaluate them on that and only evaluate them on uh, overall organizational performance? Yeah, and it's um, it, it might not be natural for some organizations or some leaders to really look at the employee experience um, as something that they're measuring against. 
But to try to make that easier, we've created uh, a toolkit on how to hold leaders accountable for employee experience that I know, you know, Molly, you and your coworkers created as part of the research uh, offering. Yeah, and this sort of came out of the previous study we did earlier this year on that um, culture fitness, look at toxic cultures and healthy cultures. And what it is, it's a tool to help your organization build that business case for holding leaders accountable for that employee experience, and then also uh, start to implement it within your organization. So if it's not a natural fit for you, if it's not something you're naturally already looking at, this is a way to help educate yourself and then educate your business partners as well to understand how, you know, what is that business case for holding leaders accountable for that employee experience? And then how can you implement it within your organization? And the stat that really jumps out is that is that headline here. It's 18 times more common in healthy cultures for them to do this, so hold their leaders accountable for that experience. Uh, so for if you're a member online, you have access to this toolkit. Uh, so certainly uh, uh, you'll find that out on the website or let us know if you can't find it, we'll help yeah. you get there. I think Zeta uh, has it as well, she can share. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to um, the topic everybody's talking about and that's generative AI. And that was our key finding number four. Uh, that that's this will certainly have a significant impact on productivity going forward. Yeah, Molly, you, you like this explanation, so I'll let you. Uh, <laughs> I do because when I was thinking about querying the internet, people, especially in the last couple months, we were like, "Well, what is AI and generative AI? And how does it differ from you know all these other ways we've been interacting with the internet and information?" You know, search engines help us find stuff. You Google something and you would find out how to do something or where something was or what the hours were for a particular store or research a product. We found stuff with that. Traditional artificial intelligence, machine, uh, machine learning, and robotic process automation, those did things for us. They might have taken a process and looked for anomalies, uh, sped things up by automating. But generative AI makes stuff, which is a whole different way of thinking about, you know, when you found stuff or did stuff, it was with existing sort of human-generated content. It may have been generated falsely on purpose or by accident, but it was sort of a human-level process that you could sort of keep up with as a human. Um, but generative AI not only generates things, but generates them so quickly that that human check and balance that we've had for finding stuff and doing stuff, if you will, uh, is no longer there. And so we're going to see that organizations are going to be rapidly impacted by this trend. And we actually, there's a great stat that um, someone put out and we've been quoting all over the place, which is 80% of jobs in the, in the future will have to at least 10% of their work tasks uh, are impacted by uh, uh, generative AI. 19% of jobs will have 50% of their work tasks impacted by generative AI. So it's huge. And from a productivity standpoint, uh, I think that's what's going to make one of the biggest differences going forward uh, is how are companies leveraging AI to take away some of those mundane or rote tasks that every worker, you know, finds themselves having to do uh, on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. And how can we have uh, generative AI handle those tasks for us going forward? And it's already I becoming a, sorry. Okay. So it's already becoming a cliche that we're saying, you know, will a robot take over your job? No, but somebody who knows how to use generative AI may take over your job. Yep. So, yep, for sure. And we um, we have a study out in the field right now where we are looking at um, the impact of AI, specifically on HR, and um, uh, we'll be we'll be releasing that study in in several weeks from now. But as we we continue to look at um, how are organizations preparing for the impact on the workforce, you can see that uh, there's a lot of companies that aren't discussing this at all just yet, but several more are discussing uh, or doing it right now. Um, when it comes to hiring for AI specific roles, particularly in HR or communicating about this to reduce fear and uncertainty throughout the workforce, encouraging employees to identify the tasks that may be accomplished or improved by generative AI and then developing workers uh, from chat prompts to whatever to effectively leverage um, generative AI. Uh, so it's good stats in, it's clear these stats probably are changing day to day, right? So if we, yeah. uh, if we go ask companies, you know, this today, we'll probably come up with different figures. And we're even seeing things like IBM saying it's going to stop hiring on roles that might be significantly impacted by generative AI and, and 
So it's starting to have a real consequence for organizations. It's not just, so organizations that are not discussing these things like hiring for AI specific roles in HR, other parts of the organization, um, start discussing because <laughs> it's coming. Now I should mention that's, that the study that's out in the field is still open. So if you want to uh, uh, respond to it, uh, maybe Zeta's already put it in the chat. I don't know, but uh, I'm not looking at the chat, but uh, certainly you have the ability to um, uh, respond to that study still. Yes, please do. But we've seen examples um, across the board of where AI has had some good impact on productivity overall. Um, two thirds of, uh, of individuals believe that, our, that AI will help increase their productivity. Uh, we've seen software engineers that can code up to, to twice as fast using a tool called Codex uh, based on the earlier version of, uh, of, of GPT. We've seen economists that can be 10 to 20% more productive. Um, there's been a lot of studies in the call center space and um, call center workers in one study were 14% more productive when using generative AI and the least experienced workers saw the biggest benefit, um, 30%. Maybe most importantly, customer satisfaction was higher uh, when using it. And that's just a direct output of being quicker to find the right answers uh, and making sure that you are giving the right answers overall. Yeah, and you know, onboarding is something that always pops to the top of the list when you talk about productivity. Um, we did another uh, sur smaller survey just in the past couple of months, and onboarding was one of the top things that organizations indicated they had done to sort of boost productivity, getting people up to speed quickly. So AI certainly has a lot of uses in that. And we, um, in in a um, couple of webinars that we've done where we've asked uh, organizations, what are you using AI for today specifically in HR? It's been very clear that, that talent acquisition has benefited the most from AI uh, across the board. We've seen a uh, number of organizations use it to generate job descriptions, uh, but also just using it uh, to help the candidate experience overall. And I know, Molly, you just did a, a webinar on talent acquisition technologies. Yeah, so talent acquisition is seeing a lot of energy around use of generative AI. We had a call with over 70 of our board members. We have six different boards that represent different groups of HR leaders, CHROs, training and learning leaders, total rewards um, leaders, everything, all these different roles. And we had about 70 of them on the phone and they were giving examples of where they're testing out generative AI. In talent acquisition, they're using it to draft uh, job descriptions. They're using it to draft and put together interview guides for specific roles that are customized to the role and the level of the interview. Um, we're seeing that in terms of learning and development, a lot of first drafts of curriculum are being generated with AI. Um, also performance reviews. A lot of senior executives talk about doing performance reviews by uploading their, um, their criteria and 360 feedback and the like. They're using it to do first drafts of, um, of performance reviews. So again, for a lot of people who, whether it's HR or in the previous slide, I talked about like economists, people who read and research for a living uh, or who write and research for a living, it's getting a lot of people from that blank page to at least some paint on the wall, if you will, to be able to generate content. And so we're seeing it throughout business, but also in HR as well. And we'll continue to watch the space because it's going to evolve quickly. Yeah, for sure. Now, Molly, before we get into recommendations um, that yeah. we had in the study, maybe I'll just turn it over to Tom. I haven't been looking at the chat, Tom, but I'm just wondering if there are questions that people had that uh, you think Molly and I should address. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Um, Molly was watching the chat and made references to some of them uh, as we went along. And uh, the material here, uh, you know, uh, answered some of the questions as they came up. Um, there were a couple though that I made note of. Um, one, a couple people noted, this is maybe more of a comment, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on it, um, that going back to the issue of performance management and goal setting, um, the whole process there, that it's not just like frequency of feedback that matters, but also coaching uh, managers on on how to the quality of the feedback that's received and and just how important that can be and and that can be almost as important as other factors like frequency and, and anything like that. Do you have any comments on that, Kevin or Molly? No, I, I, that's absolutely right. And uh, you know, I think what we find in most organizations, um, the ones that spend the time helping managers with the quality of that conversation, uh, the the better off that those organizations are. We. Um, We've actually produced a performance management guide to help managers with some of those conversations that's really bifurcated into two different areas. One is just sort of a day-to-day check-in 
how are your employees doing and questions that you can you know ask your employees about that the other one is more long-term and career uh, oriented um, and asking about their aspirations from a career development perspective, where they want to go long-term and uh, sample questions for that. I think what we found you know, time over time, Tom, is that um, managers often are, are, are pretty good once they get into those conversations. You know, They're not perfect, but pretty good once they get into it. But sometimes starting those conversations can be awkward and can be hard. And so uh, these question guides, I think, have helped a lot of those managers. And, and we've put out the same thing just for employees uh, who you know, want to take the initiative and, and have that conversation with their, their supervisor. Yeah, Kevin, that speaks exactly what Ashley just said in the chat, which is helping employees how to receive feedback. That's a skill too, how to ask for and how to receive feedback. And so that's an important part of the process as well. Yep, for sure. Very good. Uh, one other question that came up early on, um, and I think you you touched, this is one of the ones where I say the material that followed somewhat touched on it. Um, you know, how do you how do you measure trust? We had our trust index that we built out of this study. Um, but one specific question was, how do you rebuild trust once it's been broken? And, and the example that was given was promising uh, employees during the pandemic that they could work from home virtually and that that would be maybe implied that it would be indefinite. And now going back on that and either forcing three days a week or forcing, you know, full return to office. Um, I, I think you've spoken to it to some extent by saying that, well, one key thing is to train managers for trust building culture. Um, also just having a more principle based uh, you know, decision-making process instead of arbitrary rules might be too late for that in some cases, but, but going forward, say, saying that, okay, we've learned and that's what we're going to do. Anything else you would add to that though, about how to rebuild trust once it's been broken once? It's not easy. That's for sure. And this is a conversation I've had with several organizations. Um, I think, uh, and, and it's probably too late for this too, in a lot of organizations, but when you're changing a policy like that, uh, it's important to give lots of explanation around the reasons why, and even to admit, hey, you know, we when the pandemic hit, we weren't prepared. Uh, we did the best we could. We made some policy choices then, uh, but you know, for us as an organization, maybe those policies aren't, you know, aren't uh, adequate for the time that we're in right now. But I think what, and when we're putting out some material on this, I think what more and more organizations. Um, need to uh, do is, is take more of a carrot approach versus a stick approach and uh, offer up um, good reasons and programs and other activities on why people should be in the office and working together. Um, there's certainly a lot of benefits to that. Um, and there's certainly a lot of people that want that out, out in the workplace. I was just talking to my, my uh, daughter who's in college and she was telling me, I, I don't think I'd want to work remotely. I'd want to work, you know, with, with other people. And I, I hear that kind of comment a lot. And I think for organizations, you have to um, help uh, those individuals understand the benefits of why uh, they should be working side by side with others um, when you're, you know, putting out policies like many companies have, Tom. And I'd be, I'd love to hear your, Tom, you're an expert in this area. I'd love to hear your thoughts or Molly's thoughts on this as well. Yeah, Molly, uh, yeah. further thoughts? Well, I just think also, you know, giving them a reason is so important. I, I've worked remotely and flexibly my entire career. I've either been on the road with clients, sometimes I've been in an office, sometimes I've worked from home. And I always felt like I was willing to work at any of those locations, but there had to be a reason. You know, to go to fly to Cincinnati to go sit in a cubicle in a client's office and do work that I could have done at home didn't feel good. You know, but when I had a new hire coming into the company, being in our office here in Boston every day for three weeks felt great because I was able to bond with them. So giving them reasons for why they should be there. And also we were talking about how do you get trust? One way is by giving it. You know, try and experiment, try to give someone some autonomy, try and give someone a little bit of trust and hope to get it back. And you can start to build it that way too. Yeah, that, that's definitely a great practice, both uh, both in work and I'd say in, in life more generally, <laughs> in our personal lives. Um, I know we, we've got the general recommendations that you're going to share with us in just a minute, um, but we have a few minutes left. I wanted to share just one example. Um, a couple of slides back, you shared that 21% indicated from this study that they were, uh, this is regarding generative AI, encouraging employees to look for ways that generative AI or automation more broadly can be used. And I just wanted to hearken back to several years ago at our conference, which we have each year in Scottsdale, Arizona in March, um, we had Ellen Shook, the CHRO at Accenture up on the big stage. And she shared, this was back in 2018, 2019. So certainly well before generative AI was, was a word that we all understood. She shared how for one part of their massive company, 
was about 15,000 employees. They really saw the benefits coming of automation and AI. I think it was a customer service realm. Um, and they worked with their employees and said, if you will help us with these outside consultants, figure out how to automate your jobs away, in essence, then we will backstop you with full upskilling opportunities, even college tuition, et cetera, so you can stay with the firm in a more strategic higher end role, likely uh, some of them getting a pay bump as a result. That was very well received. Yes, some of those thousands of employees did leave the organization during that transition, but the vast majority of them took them up on that opportunity and ended up with better paying jobs, more strategic jobs, and just happier work at Accenture, while the company had, had the win-win of automating away the more mundane tasks uh, through the work with this consultant. So I just, that, that story from Ellen, the CHRO at Accenture really stuck with me all those years ago. And it's a good example, even before generative AI, uh, of this kind of next practice thinking. Yeah, I think they've done a, a fantastic job. Uh, they, but I think they will also tell you they've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> it's, it's a long road. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. Just like just like the firms you've talked with over the years on culture, even those with strong cultures will say it's an ongoing journey, right? Right, right, for sure. Well, Molly, right, let's, let's, yeah, let's, 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 get the, the, let's get to the recommendations then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Molly, I'll let you walk us through. Uh, we have four recommendations um, as part of the uh, part of the study. Yeah, so one is really creating that culture fitness for uh, long-term productivity. And, you know, Kevin, you've been talking about this for years. Your book is on this topic of how do you have renovate your culture to make sure that you're supporting uh, performance and productivity. And we actually found that uh, organizations that have fit cultures, those that are, um, that are engaging their employees and achieving wild success are two times more likely to report increased employee productivity since 2020. So again, having that core of your culture being focused uh, can really help you improve productivity. Again, focusing on goal achievement instead of where a worker sits, but don't do it at the expense of empathy. It's very easy to count and say how many people were in the office for how many days. It's not as easy to count how empathetic an exchange was between an employer and a manager. So it is still, it's important. It's not easy, but it's important to make sure that you're focusing on how people are being treated and how people are achieving their goals as opposed to where they sit. And again, with blanket statements, it can be really difficult. But some people work really well with in an environment where they're surrounded by colleagues and they have that focus space. Some people work really well in other conditions. So making sure that people's workspace is appropriate to their goals can also be important. Last but not least, last two, training managers. We've talked a lot about this, but finding ways to upskill current leaders and train future ones on those manager effectiveness traits has a big impact on trust with their teams and ultimately performance and productivity. So again, we've said this quite a bit, but making sure that you're not just throwing, throwing your managers into the role, but or even if they've been there for a while, making sure that everyone's got a level set on how to improve trust and get, get better feedback. And then take a thoughtful and proactive approach to AI. As Tom was saying, you see it coming. What could you do to encourage uh, workers to embrace it as appropriate, to not use it as inappropriate, and also to make sure that they're, you're dealing with any fear and uncertainty that's being created by the, uh, the dawning of this sort of interesting uh, new concept. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Also want to remind everyone uh, of our Next Practices Now conference. Again, this is now open for official registration next March 25th through the 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, you can register now if you're already making travel plans for the new year. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.